Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. And I've always felt a little bit uncomfortable with the term truthfulness. One is it gives the sense that there is some final truth, that somehow you have a privileged way of entering, and doesn't take into account the fact that truth shifts depending on the situation. And secondly, I don't like truthfulness because it doesn't really capture the feeling of what it means to live from the place of satya. So instead I've translated satya as honesty, being honest with what you've got in body, in speech, and mind. In the same way we looked at nonviolence through the three levels, the literal, compassionate, and the koan level, we're going to do the same thing with satya. So let me begin by a pa- with a passage from Thich Nhat Hanh. In his 14 mindfulness trainings, number nine is truthful and loving speech. Aware that words can create suffering or happiness, I am committed to learning to speak truthfully and constructively, using only words that inspire hope and confidence. I'm determined not to say untruthful things for the sake of personal interest or to impress people, nor to utter words that might cause division or hatred. I will not spread news that I don't know to be certain or criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will do my best to speak about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten my safety. I will do my best to speak out about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten my safety. So Thich Nhat Hanh covers something here a lot of us don't think about, which is when not to speak, when to remain silent. Sometimes keeping our mouth shut can be a powerful form of nonviolence. And sometimes keeping our mouth shut can also be a form of violence. So. Honesty of speech includes what we say, and it includes the way we listen as well. So when we're talking about speech, we're talking just about the mouth, uh, equally about the mouth as we are about the ears. I, I like to think sometimes that the precepts are a little bit like mascara or one's eyelids. We see the world through our eyelids, and we 
often forget that the eyelids have these eyelashes. And if you soften your gaze, you can notice how we're always seeing the world through our eyelashes. And so sometimes I imagine that the precepts are like mascara on your eyelashes, where with our intentions, with our attention, we create with our eyelashes this filter of the precepts. And we see the inner and outer world like this. So the precepts as eyelashes affect the way we see everything around us and in us as well. So for the next couple of weeks, maybe you can contemplate or meditate on this notion that the precepts are our eyelashes. I really like to tell the story of Ananda, who was the Buddha's right-hand man and his good friend. And he made a deal with the Buddha that whenever the Buddha was teaching, Ananda would uh, stay close to him. And if Ananda wasn't there, the Buddha would respond after Ananda return with whatever teachings the Buddha gave in Ananda's absence. So very often Ananda couldn't be there for one of the Buddha's teachings and the agreement was when he'd come back, the Buddha would give him a teaching. And there's a famous story where Ananda says to the Buddha, after discussing with the Buddha how important their friendship is, he says to the Buddha, is having deep friendship half of spiritual practice? And the Buddha says, no, Ananda, spiritual friendship is the entirety of spiritual practice. Spiritual friendship is the entirety. And and this is a term in the Dharma that you hear a lot, a, a spiritual friend. And it doesn't just mean somebody you go out dancing with or somebody that you're uh, practicing with. It's not someone who analyzes your experience. It's somebody who you can call up like you're doing with your partners and saying, hey, I couldn't sit today. I was so anxious. And then the quality of your friendship sets up the conditions for honesty, for honest and loving speech. And your partner doesn't offer any feedback necessarily. They might Uh, call you and say, you know, I just told my lover to go to hell, I walked out the door, uh, I yelled at my daughter. Um, And they don't start analyzing, saying, oh, well, in the Buddhist world or in the yogic world, there is no hell and you really should go see a therapist and so on. Instead, they really listen and you're not punished. And because you're not punished, you start to trust in your friend and in your own ability to speak what's actually going on in your own heart. And the Dharma has really survived, I think, through a series of friendships that stretches back through history, all the way to the Buddha himself. And I would say that the deepest value of practice uh, comes through our commitment to honesty. I think whether you look at nonviolence, if you look at uh, greed, if you look at any of the other precepts, any of the other ethical principles, you'll notice that it's hard to really enter those principles unless there is honesty at the base. 
Um, there are three levels of honesty, just like the other precepts, and maybe it's worth just reviewing that again. The first is the literal level. So in terms of nonviolence, that means don't hurt anybody, don't kill, and be kind to yourself. And this is a really important level to start with. So in terms of honesty, the literal level is to be honest with yourself, uh, to start where you really are. Uh, to not punish yourself and not to hurt yourself even over the precepts. Um, the second level is the compassionate level, which is the gentler level, the softer level of ethics, which is, why am I speaking to myself this way? What's going on here? Why am I not looking at a situation honestly? Why do I want to speak to someone in this way? So it's a level of investigation. And committing to that is not ideological or philosophical. And that takes us to the third principle, which is committing to a life that is honest by becoming honesty itself. So the koan level is living honestly living simply. And it's also a riddle. It's an invitation to practice the impossible, to enter the impossible, which is to live in the interconnectedness of life with a real commitment uh, to being honest with oneself and with other people. And keep in mind that this is the second precept, so it's leveraged by the first. So if you just had honesty, you would start uh, confronting your friends and being 100% honest, which could be uh, not only confrontational, but uh, it would end your relationships. So honesty is tempered by the first principle of nonviolence, meaning that we are honest and we're keeping in mind our commitment to kindness, our commitment to not having the intention of harm. So this requires some diplomacy. And you can see in other people when you look at their lives in terms of honesty and nonviolence that other people have done things to us because their lives have been restricted. We've all been hurt by our parents or by lovers or by friends. We've been abandoned, we've been left, or people have said things that have been unskillful or uh, terrible. And over time, when we really study other people's actions of speech, we can really feel the person who's caused us harm and recognize that he or she has lived in a restricted way. And I've lived in a restricted way, and you've lived in a restricted way. And when you take the time to be in that pressure cooker, of looking at something honestly, but without the ten intention to cause harm, then you enter the third precept, which is to live with honesty and nonviolence in your whole body, in speech, in mind. And this is what we call taking refuge. In the Pali language, the word refuge is sarana, which means a protection or a shelter and refuge is a good translation because in Latin, uh, fugere means to, to fly back. 
And so taking refuge means to, to fly home, to return home, to find our true home, the place we really belong. And in Zen, it's said that taking refuge in your true or your original home is taking refuge in the Buddha. That's who we are most truly and most deeply. To take refuge in the Buddha is to recognize your true home and to return to it over and over, which is the primary commitment to our lives. And to live in that place that is your Buddha nature is to live from the place that's honest. Uh, Wang Wei in 700 uh, wrote a poem that said, I follow the stream back to the source and watch the clouds pile up. I follow the stream back to the source and watch the clouds pile up. Usually we think of the source of a stream as a mouth, um, that there is a lake that is the source of a stream. But what's the source of the lake? The source of the lake are the clouds. The source of the clouds are the lake. And so there's a sense that if I follow the precepts, I find the clouds. And if I follow the clouds, I find the precepts and what they can do for me. You follow your intentions back to the source. And what do you find there? They're always in motion. At the source of your life, the precepts are always in motion, uh, echoing that circular action of our lives. We we say something, uh, like I say something to my son that's unskillful, and within a few weeks, he says it back to me. I hear it again through his small mouth. So to see the circular nature of a river, the circular nature of a cloud, and the circular nature of the precepts is to see the feedback loop of who we really are. And then we can see how our actions sculpt us. We can begin to see that karma is not something that happens to us, that karma is what we are, that we are this circular feedback loop and our actions matter. And so what honesty teaches us is to be content and satisfied to, with what we have and to listen to everybody, even those places inside of us or outside of us that we have a really hard time listening to. Um, there's this wonderful cartoon that I came across recently in The New Yorker, maybe you had seen it, Uh, showing a red light drawn across a six-lane highway with a number of cars lined up uh, in terrible traffic. And each vehicle has a dream bubble coming out of it. And in the dream bubble is the wish of that vehicle to become a better car. So there's a Ford dreaming of a Mercedes, and there's a Chevrolet dreaming of a Ferrari, and then there's a Mercedes dreaming of a Lamborghini, and a small bus dreaming of a larger bus. And I love this. This, this is how we live so often. We're, we're always trying to grab a little extra, not satisfied with what we have. So the precepts are a kind of wise re- restraint. You know, when I first wrote the book Yoga for a World Out of Balance, the title was going to be Restraint in Times of Unrestraint. And the publisher said, we can't use the word restraint. No one uses that word in English anymore. Who uses the word restraint, my editor said. 
And my first answer was people from Eastern Europe. They're not used to having so much. I just came back from Austria recently. And in Vienna, it's so hard to get fresh vegetables. Uh, it's easy to get onions and potatoes, and that's about it. And I had this thought walking around, where is the Whole Foods? If there was a Whole Foods here, it would be the greatest thing. But when you go to people's houses and they cook for you, they cook with so many fewer choices. And I think the precepts are like this. They, they teach us how to have wise restraint, not to always go and get something extra. So in terms of satya or honesty, there is a uh, chart that's been created and it looks a little bit like this. Before you speak, ask if what you're saying is honest or not honest. And can you do that within yourself? Is the way I'm speaking to myself honest or not honest? If it's true, is it beneficial? Within your own reflection, speaking to yourself internally, ask yourself, is this beneficial, the way I'm taking, talking to myself right now? Mindfulness of anything is a kind of dead-end sign. Usually dead-end signs are placed at the end of the road, which is not so helpful. You start going down the street, and there's no sign. And then when you get to the end, it says dead-end. Mindfulness practice means trying to pull the sign to the front of the road. It means taking the dead-end sign that you find at the end of the cul-de-sac and bringing it up to the front so that before you start heading down that route or rut, you know that it's a dead end. You start down the road and somewhere along the way you think, oh, this is a dead end. The goal eventually is that even though you never get rid of the dead end, you can recognize them as they arise. You notice, if I start talking to myself in this way, I know where this is going to end. I know where this is going to lead. It's going to lead to a night of uh, emotional torment. Even if something's true and it's beneficial, can you accept it? Are you in a place where you can really receive it? So if you're going to speak to someone and it's untrue, don't speak it. But if it's true, before you speak, is it beneficial? And can you accept it? If you can accept it, don't say it yet. If you can accept it, speak it. Am I really going to stop and do this? Say this to yourself. Should I really stop and say this? So I'm going to ask you as homework to really plug some of the core ways you speak into this table. If it's not beneficial, if it really can't be heard by the one you're speaking to, reflect on it. And this is where investigation really comes through. And wait for the right time to speak. Timing could be everything. There may be something that's beneficial that you can really work with right now. A breakup is a good example. In a breakup, there's something that you may need to say to someone. But if you said it, it wouldn't be beneficial to them or to you. I've seen this so many times where people are splitting up and then suddenly they want to say everything they think to the person who they're splitting up with. And it causes so much pain. And maybe sometimes people have to say, as I just told a friend of mine, wait for a year, or maybe wait for a hundred years. 
Don't tell your ex, I said to my friend, everything about the relationship that didn't work. If you did that, as many of us sometimes do, neither of you are really in a space to take it in. So this is really where the, the tough lesson of wisdom comes in. Whenever I teach silent retreats, I always remind people when the retreat finishes and you go home, don't tell everybody about the retreat. Some people can't hear it. And then over time you'll become frustrated when people say, how is the retreat? Try and get a sense if they can really hear and have speech that's appropriate to the situation, appropriate speech. If not, people will say, how was the silent retreat? And you're in this intense space and you start telling them all the things going on in your heart and what you've noticed and they can't really take it in. And then neither of you feels good. When there's something that's too overwhelming to work with, maybe there's something I really want to say to somebody and it's just not the right time or I don't think they can hear it. I don't want to hold it in because sometimes just holding it in can be a kind of repression. So I have an altar set up in my home and every morning, actually twice a day, I go and light incense and a candle in front of the altar. And if there's something I'm working with, maybe some anger towards someone, or there's something I want to say to them, but I don't yet know how to work it out, I'll write it down, maybe three or four different versions of what I want to say to that person. And I'll put it on a little piece of paper and I'll put it on the altar. Some days I have five or six of these on the altar where there's something I want to express, but it's too early to send the email or make the phone call or ask them for tea. And I'll just work it out sometimes with the altar and uh, promise myself to give it two or three days of sitting on the altar before I uh, take it in and decide or not to express it. So this chart is really, really helpful. And I want you to really meditate on this chart. Um, but it certainly doesn't mean not speaking. So Marshall Rosenberg, in his work in nonviolent communication, talks a lot about blame in and blame out. And sometimes when it comes to speech, it's good to know which side you're on. Some of us, when somebody says something difficult to us, or we realize something painful about ourselves, we go into blame in mode, that it's all our fault. And some of us may be in the other camp, which is when someone says something difficult to us, we blame them, or something difficult is going on internally for us, and we project it onto somebody else. And both are sort of devastating. Um, how is it possible to look honestly at our lives without blaming ourselves and without blaming others for what we see? It's so easy when there's difficulty in dynamics in relationship, for example, to just either blame everything on me or blame everything on the other. 
And the truth is, it's both. All of our experience is co-created, is interdependent, is mingled. And so usually in relational trouble, both people are creating um, uh, tension or conflict. And at the same time, we have to step back and be able to look honestly at what's going on in us so that we can start to lessen our reactivity so that honesty or wise seeing or right view and right speech and non-harm can all start to come together. Um, let me read again what uh, I quoted at the beginning by Thich Nhat Hanh. Aware that words can create suffering or happiness, I'm committed to learning to speak truthfully and constructively. Using only words that inspire hope and confidence, I'm determined not to say untruthful things for the sake of personal interest, or to impress people, or to utter words that might cause division or hatred. I sometimes think in community, there's nothing worse in community than speaking in a way or acting in a way that causes division in the community. We are so lucky when we find community that we can really give to and receive from. And I think one of the uh, most painful things to watch in community is when someone has snide comments or gossip or some way of speaking that puts others down or exaggerates or puts themselves up while putting others down or putting themselves down while inflating others. I think these are all ways we cause a lot of division in community and in ourselves. Anyways, Thich Nhat Hanh continues, I will not spread news that I don't know to be certain or criticize or condemn things of which I'm not sure. I will do my best to speak out about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten my safety. I'm remembering a story where Prince Abhyasa asks the Buddha a question. How, how is it that you come up with an answer for something? When someone speaks to you, how is it that, how do you respond? This is a really good question. I think it gets into the heart of the precepts. When somebody speaks to you and asks you a question, how do you respond? So this prince is asking the Buddha this question, how do you respond? And the Buddha says, well, when people come to you and ask, what's chariot? Or what is the name of a part of a chariot? You've spent a lot of time in chariots, fixing chariots, constructing chariots. What do you say? In your own mind, what happens? Do you start going through all the parts of the chariot and uh, trying to piece them together? Or do you just respond to what shows up on the spot, understanding where the question's coming from? In other words, when somebody speaks to you, how do you respond? He goes back and forth in this dialogue with the Buddha, and then 
the prince says, well, I know in my body all the parts of the chariot. It's something I've trained in. It's something I understand. So I just speak on the spot because I know. And the Buddha says, well, this is how answers should occur to you. They should occur to you on the spot. And I think if you compare this to the chart, this is really interesting. So this is the final or koan level <clears throat> of honesty. When somebody asks you a question, if you're fully listening, you'll know how to answer. You'll know how to respond. And this is what I continually call not just mindfulness, but situational ethics. That when you're present, you know what to do. So much of the time, we're not really meeting the moments of our lives in a fresh way. We're applying to questions that come at us, uh, an ideology or a philosophy or a quick emotional reaction. <clears throat> and we're not allowed to touch our hearts in a deep way. So the heart of honesty is to respond from the heart, to be able to say, I don't know, to be able to hold back the tendency to blame in or blame out, and to have as the underlying intention of wise speech the commitment not to do harm. What I love about Thich Nhat Hanh's um, quote, that aware that words can create suffering or happiness, I'm committed to learning to speak truthfully and constructively, using only words that inspire hope and confidence. What I love about this is it's action-oriented. It's not just something that you're observing while you're speaking. It's a training for how to use words, for how to use language in the moment. If you live in a way that has strong embeddedness in community, in family, in relationships, you'll see why it's so important um, to use wise speech. Uh, sometimes living in the city, uh, as I do, actually I was thinking about this last night because I went to visit somebody who has a, a condominium in a new area of the city where life is so insular and people don't really uh, walk out of their door and see others working in their yard or walking past them. It's a very private life. And um, <clears throat> I had the thought that ethics are not as necessary, or not, 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 not as necessary, but um, the literal level of ethics is not as in one's face when they're not living closely uh, or embedded in community. So I hope we've covered the importance in honesty of looking at your own mind, um, of looking at the way you speak, and noticing how working with nonviolence of speech will affect the quality of your mind the quality of your ears, the quality of your skin, the quality of your relationships. 
and really being able to look clearly at a mind that causes harm and also a mind that is generous and compassionate. Or you could say looking at the parts of your mind that cause harm from a place of generosity and compassion. Uh, that's really the, the heart, uh, the heart of honesty. So again, the first precept we've covered is ahimsa, not having the intention to cause harm. And the second precept we've covered now is honesty. Honest with the body, internally and externally. Honest with your body and honest with other bodies. Honesty in speech. Honesty in the way you talk to yourself about yourself. And honesty in how you speak with others. Imagine if the only precept you work on for the next five years was being honest in how you speak to yourself about yourself. In working through the tendency towards exaggeration or self-judgment. That would be a profound thing, I think, for your own life and lives around you. And the third form of honesty is honesty in the mind, being able to really look honestly at your own mind and to look clearly at the minds of others. Um, this is another uh, really deep practice, not a rule, but a practice. And I really encourage you to take up honesty as a practice and to see how honesty is an expression of nonviolence. Today we focus mostly on honesty of speech because I think that's where most of us um, really get caught, is uh, being dishonest in how we speak and listen. Whether it's selective hearing or whether it's speaking what we think others want to hear or whether it's not really speaking honestly to ourselves about what's actually going on in our own hearts. So I think the core of honesty has to do with speech. And I'm going to encourage you to work with your partners over the next couple of weeks on the chart. So take the chart, put it up on your fridge, put it in your room, uh, use it as your screensaver, uh, memorize it, and think through with your partner some examples during the week uh, where you followed the chart into one area of beneficial speech or where you followed the chart into another area of speech that isn't beneficial. Maybe there are times you've spoken thinking you should be honest, but the other person couldn't actually hear, and so maybe it wasn't skillful to actually speak. And you'll see that there is a lot of depth here to this uh, precept. So, thank you again for tuning in and for making the commitment to look at ethics as something one becomes at a cellular level rather than just an idea that we're trying to reach. <laughs>